As you head back, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. If you don't have your Bible, that's all right. In just a moment, it'll show up on the screen on either side of me here. As you're turning there, I want to again welcome you to Newbreed Church. If you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as a lead pastor here at Newbreed Church. We're so thankful that you are here. We are in the midst of a season, we're at a, a sermon series. We're actually coming towards the end of it, a series through the book of Nehemiah, a series that we've entitled A Faith That Moves You Forward, A Faith That Moves You Forward. And this morning, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 11. And if you're there, I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word, Nehemiah chapter 11. And I just want to read into your hearing this morning just, just the first two verses and then we'll, we'll work through the rest of the chapter. But Nehemiah chapter 11, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1, is what Nehemiah records. Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remain in their towns, the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. This morning, I want us to consider this idea of faith to play your part. Faith to play your part. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, your goodness to us, God, I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Faith to play your part. Thank you, brother. Okay. On July 26th, 1971, Apollo 15 was launched from the Kennedy Space Center at Merritt Island, Florida. Uh, the crew of Apollo 15 was a three-person crew, and they would spend the next 12 days, seven hours, and 12 minutes in space and complete the fourth successful land, uh, the fourth, I'm sorry, the fourth successful manned moon landing in history. Once on the moon, the astronauts would spend 66 hours exploring and gathering scientific data. Two of the three astronauts, Commander David Scott and Lunar Module Pilot James Irwin, would spend 18 of their 66 hours outside of the spacecraft. And during that time, it's incredible, they were able to cover over 17 miles of the moon's surface in a specialized vehicle known as the moon buggy. Now, when you sit and think about that, that's an amazing accomplishment. Like, it's, it's difficult for my brain to even fathom traveling to the moon, exploring the moon, and then actually making it back to tell the tale. I mean, in my mind, you could still convince me that the moon's made of cheese. I have no evidence that it's not. Right? So for those astronauts, that moment of arriving back on Earth must have felt like a hero's welcome literally out of this world. See what I did there? Maybe you can somewhat imagine the sense of pride that these astronauts must have had in themselves and their accomplishments. 
I mean, in my mind, if anybody had a reason to boast in themselves, it's these three people. However, upon reflecting on the Apollo 15 mission after they made it back to Earth, lunar module pilot James Irwin said this. He said, as as I was returning, I realized that I'm not a celebrity, but a servant. He said this, so I am here as God's servant on planet Earth to share what I have experienced that others may know the glory of God. And church, that is an amazing and an accurate perspective to take. Because in other words, he's saying that we are not the center of the story. I'm sorry, but we are not the center of the story. We're not the celebrities. Even in what appears to be our accomplishments, we are the servants. We are the servants of a God who is worthy. And what Irwin understood, what he was communicating, it's so profound. You see, what he understood was that it doesn't matter It doesn't matter if you're a banker or a babysitter. It doesn't matter if you're an accountant or an astronaut. It doesn't matter if you're you're a bus monitor or a stay-at-home mother. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a painter. It doesn't matter if you are self-employed, underemployed, or not employed. Everyone has a part to play in making the glory of God known. We are the servants, and God is the celebrity that we show off. But don't miss this. Irwin didn't need a pulpit to make the glory of God known. Irwin didn't need a stage or a seminary degree. Irwin, Irwin's part was to serve God by using the abilities God had given him as an astronaut to make the glory of God known. That was his part to play. And what I want you to see this morning is that each and every one of us, regardless of our education level, regardless of our employment, regardless of our age, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our socioeconomic status, each and every one of us has a part to play. What I want you to understand this morning is that it takes faith to play your part. But a faith that is moving forward is a faith that finds its place in God's grand story and is willing to serve God by playing the part that God has called you to play. And I'm just going to tell you here at the front end, I'm going to give it away at the very beginning in case you haven't figured it out. The part we play is that we are servants. We are servants. We are servants to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this morning, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 11, I want us to examine some significant aspects of the people of God as they model what it looks like to be a people who through faith play the part that they were called to play for the glory of God. Now, I know most of you know this. We've got some visitors with us. We've been at this for 11 weeks now. So let me recap a little bit of where we are in the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah begins with Nehemiah being in service to the king of Persia. He's in Susa. He's a servant to King Artaxerxes. And his brother and some companions come. They come from Jerusalem. And, and, And Nehemiah asks, how are things going in Jerusalem? And we have to remember that a few decades earlier, a first group of of God's people went back to Jerusalem and they were able to rebuild the temple, but that's all they were able to do. Under Zerubbabel, under Ezra, they rebuilt the temple, but Jerusalem was still in shambles. And so Nehemiah gets this report, that man, things aren't great in Jerusalem. There's no houses, there's no, no homes, the walls are still, they're still destroyed, there's no protection. It's basically just a temple and that's it. And Nehemiah is broken over this. So Nehemiah goes to the king. And he says, King Artaxerxes, with your permission, I'd like to go back to Jerusalem. I'd like to rebuild the walls of this city. And King Artaxerxes gives him permission. 
And so Nehemiah travels, he heads back, he, he gets to Jerusalem, he surveys the state of the city, he realizes that the walls are in complete disrepair, that, that there's nothing in this city but a temple. And so throughout this entire process, Nehemiah relies on the Lord, and what we see as we work through it is that in 52 days, despite opposition, despite threats, despite violence, despite people trying to stop this work, they're able to rebuild the wall. And so in those first seven chapters, we see very much in the book of Nehemiah the physical restoration of the city of Jerusalem. But then in chapter 8, something shifts. It's no longer about the physical restoration. Now we start to see the spiritual restoration. We've talked about the fact that God doesn't just care about our spiritual well-being. God doesn't just care about our physical well-being. God cares about us in our entirety. And so we watch as the, as the spiritual renewal begins to take place. And so it begins with the people coming to Ezra to the priests, to the leaders, and saying, we want to hear from the word of God. They call the leaders to bring the law of God and to read it, and so they read for hours on end, and the people are broken. But if you remember, this was taking place on the seventh month, and that's a special time in the life of God's people, and it was meant to be a month of celebration, a remembrance of when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land, a reminder that God was with his people at every step of the way. Though they were in the wilderness, they were never alone. And so, and so the, the leaders say, hey, this isn't a time for mourning and weeping. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate what God has done. And so they celebrate, and they are faithful. Then as the month progresses towards the end on the 24th day, they again ask for the law. They spend six hours hearing the law read, and then they spend six hours in confession. And as they confess, their focus isn't necessarily on themselves. They once again are reminded of a God who has been faithful at every step of the way. They're reminded of the truth that whenever we are faithless, God is faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so then last week, what we saw in chapter 10 was the people in response to all of this, in response to their mourning, in response to their worship, and in response to them seeing God as great, they recommit their lives to the Lord. They commit their lives to the Lord. But now here in chapter 11, I love this, we actually get to see that commitment fleshed out. Because it's one thing to say you commit to the Lord. It's another thing when you've got to start walking that commitment out. And so we see them willing to play their part, committed to the glory of God, committed to the law, willing to do whatever is necessary to make much of God's great name. So as we come to chapter 11, we see this progression continue where their commitment to God shows up as they seek to serve God. Now before we get to the first point, let me just note that this service, this actually playing their part, it is worship. Right? We saw it there in the first verse. If you go back, it says, Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem. Not only, see, remember, if you go back a few verses into chapter 10, they were going to give a tenth of what they had for, for the house of worship, right? You, you see in, in verse 37 of chapter 10, We will bring a loaf from our first batch of dough to the priests at the storerooms of the house of God. We will also bring the first fruits of our grain offering of every fruit tree and of the new wine and the fresh oil. Here it is. A tenth of our land's produce belongs to the Levites, for the Levites are to collect the one-tenth offering in our agricultural town. So they offer one-tenth of their possessions, but here we see that they offer one-tenth of the people. They offer themselves as sacrifices to the Lord to live their lives in service to the glory of God. 
So what I want to do is I want to point out to you four, four truths that we see in Nehemiah chapter 11 as we consider this idea of a faith to play your part. Because again, we have a part to play in this story. And so I, I want to use Nehemiah 11 to, to hopefully teach us some truths that we can take from this place. So here's the first thing that I want you to see. Your part is part of a bigger story. Your part is part of a bigger story. Let me read verses one and two to you again. It says, now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of 10 to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine tenth remained in their towns. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So here's what I mean when I say your part is part of a bigger story. What, what I'm getting at is the fact that Again, we all have a part to play in making much of the glory of God, but we were never meant to play our part on our own. This is something, church, that we have seen over and over throughout the book of Nehemiah, isn't it? I mean, you're probably tired of me talking about it. This is something we see over and over throughout the full account of the Bible. It's almost as if God wants us to get this, that we were never meant to play our part on our own. We are meant to play our part in the context of the covenant community with brothers and sisters who are also playing their part all around us. And we see this truth that our part of the story is part of a bigger story. We see it in a couple of ways in these first two verses. So first we see it with the leadership. Again, this isn't a bunch of random people deciding on their own what they're going to do to bring God glory. It says there in verse 1, Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem. So the leaders, so let me just kind of paint the picture. The walls have been rebuilt. After the walls have been rebuilt, after worship has taken place, most of God's people leave Jerusalem. They leave. Because there's no place for them there. There are no houses built. There's nowhere for them to stay. And so they go back to surrounding towns and villages. They go back to settlements. They go back to ancestral land. They leave the city, but all of the leaders stay. They stay in the city. They're managing the affairs. They're attempting to repopulate the city. And the assumption that we draw from the text is that this casting of lots, this bringing one out of every 10 people into the city, it was led by the leaders. So these leaders are actually leading in the process. Because, again, remember the state of the city. We saw it in Nehemiah 7, verse 4. After the wall is complete, Nehemiah tells us that the city was large and spacious, that there were few people in it and no houses had been built yet. So this is something that collectively the people of God have to remedy. Now again, this isn't just about a building project. This goes back to the very purpose why Nehemiah even wanted to go back to Jerusalem in the first place. You remember? Nehemiah wanted to bring God glory by removing the disgrace of God's people. By once again returning to the place that God had promised them. By seeing the promises of God realized. To have the people of God flourishing in the place where God had promised. And, and as a result, it would bring God glory. This is all about the glory of God. But what Nehemiah understood was that he couldn't do it alone. They couldn't do it by themselves. It required the collective of people of God. It required them playing their part in the context of a bigger story. Your part in the story is not devoid of others, and it's also not devoid of leadership. Now, let me press in here just a little bit. I know we've talked about it before, 
But we have to recognize that God has set up this, this walk of faith, this faith that is moving forward. He has set up his covenant community with genuine leaders in place. Now, I know that in our day and age and in the American context, this is a touchy subject, and here's why. Because what we have seen and what we have witnessed is people in positions of authority and positions of leadership abuse that authority and hurt people with that leadership. And though it can be abused and misused, it doesn't automatically mean that leadership is bad. Authority is significant. It is significant. So, so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of lay it out here as we as pastors see it, right? Like we as pastors understand that our job, though it takes different shapes and forms, yes, we preach the word. Yes, we organize outreaches. Yes, we're, we're updating websites and we're giving announcements. But we understand at the core of what we are called to do is we are called to be your actual spiritual authorities, but this isn't because we are high and elevated and we don't need that. That's actually why New Breed has four pastors. I need pastors to pastor me. They need pastors to pastor them. We submit to one another because we all need that authority in our lives. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. We need to understand that our spiritual life is not meant to be lived on an island. I just got to be honest, church, and sometimes we are making spiritual decisions without spiritual leadership, and we wonder why it's falling apart. Like God has designed this to work a certain way. And it doesn't mean that we are faultless. Hold us accountable. If we start failing to lead in accordance with God, God's word, don't submit to us. But in as much as we are submitting to God's word, you are placing yourself under our authority just as we place ourselves under the authority of the other pastors. We need leadership. We all need it. But we see the bigger story, right, even in the response of the people in verse 2. So they cast lots, and one out of every ten person is uh, one out of every ten people is selected to move to Jerusalem. And then in verse two it says, "And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem." So here's again what's happening: they cast lots. One out of every ten person people is going to come and live in Jerusalem. And if the lot fell on a person, right? So if they if they were chosen to be the one to go to Jerusalem, they were asked to come to Jerusalem. They weren't forced to do it. They would volunteer to take that responsibility. That word translated there as volunteered in, in, in the CSB, it could also be translated as willingly gave themselves over. So basically the lot was cast to pick a person to give them the opportunity to willingly give themselves to the work of God. So you have people willing to play their part by going to live in Jerusalem. And we'll see in just a moment that it was actually a sacrifice for them to do that. But, but, but in response to this, right, the rest of the people who aren't chosen, they're not jealous, they're not angry, they bless them. They bless them. They recognize them and the part that they are to play in this story. And again, it wasn't just people randomly doing what they wanted to do, divorced from the covenant community and covenant authority. Each person was playing a part in God's bigger story for his glory. So I'm going to try to make it plain to you. Y'all looking at me like you're ready to move on. So I'm going to try to just like lay this one out there and then I'm going to be done. And I'm going to say it as lovingly as possible because that doesn't seem to like be resonating with you. So here it is. This whole Christianity thing, this whole following Jesus thing, it's not about you. It's not about you. And I know 
that, that in church, right, we'll hear that and we'll say amen. We agree with that statement, but I got to remind you of it because we are tempted to forget. So, so here it is. The Bible, it's not about you. It's a story about how amazing God is. The church is not primarily about you. This is not a place where you are meant to come and have every one of your preferences met. This is a place where we come and sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of our brothers and sisters around us. The cross is not primarily about you. It is primarily about the glory of God. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and the Bible tells us that the reason Jesus died on the cross was so that God would be both the just and the justifier. Jesus was thinking of you, but he was thinking of his Father first. God does not exist for you. You exist for him. But here's the good news. When we realize this, it actually leads to our flourishing. Because understanding that this is for God and this isn't about you and living to make much of his glory will actually lead to your greatest good. It will lead to your flourishing, and the result will be God's blessings in your life. We are part of a bigger story with many characters, but God and God alone is the main character of this story. Your part is a significant part, but it is a part of a bigger story. And if we're going to faithfully play our part, here's the second truth that we have to understand. Your part will require sacrifice. Look back with me at verse three. It says, these are the heads of the province who stayed in Jerusalem. But in the villages of Judah, each lived on his own property in their towns, the Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants. So I mentioned before, lots are cast for some to come and live in Jerusalem and the rest remained in towns and villages outside of Jerusalem. And I want you to see this, that for both groups, it doesn't matter if they were in Jerusalem, or it doesn't matter if they were the 90% that didn't go into Jerusalem, everybody was sacrificing. Because for those who were chosen by lot to go into Jerusalem, here are a couple things we have to remember. First, their families most likely weren't chosen with them. So you had people willing to go for the glory of God, for the good of the community, go to Jerusalem, even though their families wouldn't be able to go with them. Second, this might have meant for most of them leaving their jobs, their occupations, to come and dwell in a city where there wasn't even any commerce yet. This was potentially a loss of their income and their stability. Some of them were abandoning ancestral lands that had been in their family for generations, They were coming to a city where there was so much work to be done. They didn't even have a house to live in. They didn't have any businesses. They had an incomplete city that they had to work to build. They were sacrificing to play their part, but it wasn't just them. Because the people who remained, who weren't chosen, who had to to stay in towns and villages and settlements, they sacrificed as well. Some of them sacrificed family members who would go into the city. They sacrificed their nearness to the place where God's presence dwelt. Remember, God dwelled in the temple in the Old Testament, and they were willingly staying at a distance. But here's the thing, they still had to travel because they had to go in for sacrifices. They had to go in if they were going to be faithful. They were sacrificing resources, time, and energy. They didn't have the protection of the walls of Jerusalem to guard them from all of the people who wished to do them harm. 
Everyone was sacrificing for the glory of God. So the question that we have to ask is why in the world would these people sacrifice so much? Why would they sacrifice? But see, that's, how, that's the beauty of how amazing the chapters before this are. Because they had seen the goodness of God. They knew the faithfulness of God. They had experienced the compassion and the steadfast love of God. And, and despite all of their sin, all of their failure, despite their idolatry, their, faith, their faithlessness, no matter what the season or situation, God had never abandoned them. They believed that God is better than any earthly comfort. They believed that God is better than acceptance from the surrounding nations. They believed that God was better than anything they might gain in this world. They believed that God is worthy, that his presence is better than any treasure of this world. So they are willing to sacrifice all of those things that they might be in relationship with God. So in some sense, yes, they sacrifice, but in all reality, they gain so much more than they lose. And church, I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. Nothing has changed from then to now. I don't know where we got this idea. I really don't know where we got this idea that you can have the world and have Jesus. I don't know where we got the idea that being a Christian would require no sacrifice. But, but I've got to be honest enough to tell you this morning that that's just not in the Bible. It's just not there. The Bible bids us come and die. That's what it invites us to. The Bible says the, the, the truth that, that we hold to will turn fathers against sons and mothers against daughters. Happy Mother's Day. The Bible says that we will sacrifice comfort in this world, that we will sacrifice ease in this world, that we will sacrifice opportunity and advancement in this world. But that's not all the Bible says. Because Jesus also promises in Matthew 19 that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. The Bible says in James 1.12 that blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure... We will reign with him. Yes, we will sacrifice. And if we are to faithfully play our part in God's story, it will cost us. But that's not the only thing that happens. Because we will gain so much more. And what we gain is better than anything we will lose. In the words of the missionary Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so, brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you if you, are, if you are faithfully playing your part and you are thinking, this is costing so much. I'm losing relationships. I'm, my job's not advancing like I thought I would. I'm spending so much time serving people and no one seems to care. Following Jesus is costly, but there is an immeasurable blessing that comes with it. We will inherit eternal life, we will reign with Christ. Like, I think about that. He doesn't just say, you're going to be with me. He doesn't just say, like, like I'm going to be on my throne and you can hang out in heaven. And we get to reign with Christ in glory. But we can't be naive about the truth that playing our part will cause us to sacrifice. And again, I'm not trying to pick too much, but this is so counter to the world that we're living in right now. 
Like, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, and I think there's a place for some of this. Please hear me, there's a place. We can flesh out later. But the talk of the day is like, hey, set your boundaries. If it costs you, don't do it. Right? Like, you, you, you self-care. You take care of yourself before anything else. And again, I, there's a place for all of that. I believe it, right? The other pastors are trying to get me to take care of myself, right? It needs to happen. But what we have done is we have elevated ourselves and the elimination of sacrifice above the call to lay our lives down for the glory of God and the good of the people around us. And some of the boundaries that you might be setting right now might be stripping you of the blessing that God wants to give you. Because playing your part will hurt sometimes. And it doesn't always feel good. But what we gain is so much better. Here's the third truth I want you to see. And I'll be honest, I know that that needs a more nuanced discussion than what I just gave it, but I just want you to wrestle with that in your spirit, seriously. Like, there's a lot of nuance to what, what I just said, but, but we cannot elevate ourselves above our sacrifice. All right, here's the third truth that I want you to see. Your part is your part. We see this in chapter four through the end of the chapter. All right, so there's an interesting division that takes place in this chapter. It's actually kind of split in half. So in verses four through 24, you have all those people who stayed in Jerusalem, and you have them listed by name. Right, so it starts with the descendants of Judah there in verses four through six. I'm not gonna read it all to you, but, but it starts with the descendants of Judah. And then in verses seven through nine, we see the descendants of Benjamin. Again, these are people in Jerusalem. Then Nehemiah lists the priests who stay in Jerusalem in verses 10 through 14. Then he lists the Levites in verses 15 through 18. Then you have the gatekeepers in verse 19. And right, so throughout these 20 verses or so, you have the people who are in Jerusalem. You have them listed by name and you get a, you get a sense of the responsibility of these particular people. But then in verse 25, a shift takes place, right? You learn about those who are in the towns and the villages. And what Nehemiah does is he doesn't list all the names. He just lists all the locations, all the settlements where the people dwell around the city, sometimes miles out. So you have in the first part those who are in the city. And then in the second part, you have those who are outside of the city. You see all the locations, all the settlements. You get a sense of the people and the families that are there. And as you read through these lists of names and places, roles and responsibility, you start to get the sense of how diverse all of these things are. How much is going on in this bigger story. And yet it was all for the glory of God. The people who were in the settlements and towns outside of Jerusalem were there for the glory of God. The people who were in the city were serving in different roles, all for the glory of God. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. There are a lot of parts to play in this story, and your part is your part. What God has called you to very well, maybe, is most likely different than what is God, God has called me to. How God has gifted you to bring him glory may very well is most likely different than how God has gifted me to bring him glory. But here's what I want you to see. The focus should not be on what we do. The focus should be on the mutual goal of why we are doing it. And I know, church, I know there's a temptation to believe that the grass is always greener on the other side. I know there's a temptation for that. That there's a temptation to believe that if God had just given you different giftings, your life would be going so much better. 
that if God would have given you a different ministry assignment, man, things would be going so much better. If God would have given you the pulpit, that things would be going so much better. And I'm not saying that that's just a temptation for you. That's a temptation for me. As a pastor, there are times I, I, I can be tempted to believe that if I had something other than the pastor, if I was doing something else, I could bring God more glory, that it would be easier, that it would be better on the other side. We can all face this temptation. There's a temptation to look at those who are in quote-unquote ministry and think that that's really how you bring God glory. If only I could get there, then I could bring God glory. But what I want you to see is that your part is your part, and God did not make a mistake when he gave it to you. Even more, God has not only placed you where you are for his glory, but God has placed you where you are for the good of this body and the future body that God is continuing to build. Paul says it like this in Romans 12, 4 through 8. Now we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the portion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. Here's the main idea. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 12. You matter. You matter with the gifting that you have. You matter where God has placed you. It doesn't matter if you're a finger, if you're a toe, if you're a nose, if you're an eye, and a mouth. It doesn't matter what body part you are. It matters whether or not you're attached to the body. What matters is that you are a part of the body. Let me give you an example. There are parts of my body that I don't think about that much, to be honest with you. I don't think about it. I was, I was thinking about this this week. I don't know why, because this is where my, brain go, my mind goes. Other than this week, I couldn't tell you the last time I thought about my elbow. Like, I, I just couldn't tell you. Like, you can come look at it. They're ashy. They don't get lotion. Like, I just don't think about my elbows. In the morning when I'm getting ready for church, like, I'm making sure I didn't miss a spot when I shaved my head. I shaved it this morning. It's shining, all right? Checking to make sure my line, which is uneven, I know it, because I just can't get the thing straight. I'm going to need you, Pastor. I can't get it straight. Right? I'm looking at my face. I'm making sure I'm trimmed. I, I want a little bit of stubble. I like the little stubble on the neck. Not a lot. Like, that's what I'm looking at. There has yet to be a morning I've gotten ready and I've said, dang, look at that elbow. That's a fire elbow. Shoulder sore, right? But do you know what? It got me thinking. I remember one time when I was early in my teens and I broke my arm. And they put the whole arm in a cast. And I couldn't move my elbow. I realized how significant my elbow was when my elbow stopped working. What I'm trying to get you to see not all of us are going to have the upfront positions. Not all of us are going to be seen and praised and get all the world's accolades. And to be honest, we shouldn't want those anyway. But what matters is not where we are in the body. What matters is that we are functioning as God has called us to function. So I'm not trying to like put different service areas with different parts of the body. I don't know who's a toe. I don't know what... I don't know what the elbow is or the fingers. I don't know what body part represents what role. But all I know is that if you stop working in this body, we will feel it because you matter. 
Your part is your part. And if you're an elbow, God has called you to be an elbow because nobody else can be a right elbow just like you. And if you're a toe, it's because God designed you and wants you to be a toe because the body needs you as a toe. You and I have to play our part for the glory of God, not only for the glory of God, but for the good of this body. But you know what I love? I love in Nehemiah 11. There never seems to be jealousy, right? Like go back to verse two. Like, like this is where my mind goes. If I just spent 52 days, 52 days rebuilding the wall, even if the city's a mess, I want to be in there, right? I want to be able to walk by that water gate and be like, I built that, Right? You see that? You see the fish gate over there? I helped that third stone up. Yo, I carried that there. Chris Davis couldn't carry it there. I carried it there. (laughs) But the people who didn't get called to go, they blessed those who went. They blessed them. I don't know what that blessing looked like, but I... There's a part of me that just imagines that they gathered those people, they laid hands on them and said, for the glory of God and for our good, go. Go. Be faithful where God has called you. One thing that will help us to be faithful to play the part that God has called us to play is to remember, hear me, church, that our worth has never been dependent on the part that we are called to play. Our worth has never been dependent on the part that we are called to play. Can I tell you where your worth is found? In the fact that you are created in the image of God. And it doesn't matter if you're an astronaut or an artist, a preacher or a painter, a stay-at-home mom, a working mom, a stay-at-home dad, a working dad. What matters when it comes to your worth and your dignity is that you are made in the image of God and he has breathed the breath of life in you. That is where our dignity is found. That is where our worth is. It is not in the role that we are called to play. It is in the fact that we are knit together in our mother's womb by the very hand of God. And he loves us and he sees us. And so if you are struggling with the part that God has called you to play in this story, I pray that this last point, I'm almost done, that it will be grace to you this morning. Here it is. Here's the last thing that I want you to see. Your part is seen by God. Your part is seen by God. So let me be honest with you. This, this was one of those chapters. It's hard to get a sermon out of this chapter. It was. I mean, it's a lot of names. It's a lot of places. But one thing that stood out to me, and it actually bothered me, I got a little irritated with it, was verses 25 through 36, the very end. Right? Well, what, what, if you were right ahead, you probably skipped over that too. So I'm, I'm going to read it. To, I'm going to try to read it to you. I'm going to get these names right, all right? Because this is, this is important. It, Nehemiah 11, beginning of verse 25, it says, As for the farming settlements with their fields, some of Judah's descendants, so these are God's people, right, lived in Kiriath Arba and Dabon and their surrounding villages, and Je- Jacobziel and in its settlements, in Jeshua, in Molada, in Beth Pilat, in Hazar Shul, in Beersheba, and its surrounding villages, in Ziglag and Mechana, its surrounding villages, in in Ramon, in Zerah, in Jarmuth, in Zenoa, in Adulam, and their settlements, in Lachish with its fields, and Ezekah and the surrounding villages. So they settled from Beersheba 
to the Himnon Valley, Benjamin's descendants from Geba to Michmash to Ejah and Bethel and its surrounding villages. Naathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazar, Ramah, Gidaim, Hadad, Zeboim, Nebalot, Lod, and Ono in Craftsman Valley. Some of the Judean divisions of Levites were in Benjamin. Praise God. Now let me tell you why I got upset with that. Because my first thought was, again, I'm just being honest. Like, this is where my mind goes. Hey, that's petty, Nehemiah. How are you going to list all the names of the people that go into Jerusalem, but then just talk about the places where everybody outside of you couldn't even list anybody's names? You're just going to list settlements and villages, right? Like you're kind of undoing my sermon here. How am I going to preach that every part matters when like you list these people by name, but you won't even mention the names of the people? But the more I thought about it, the more I began to see the beauty in all of this. Because here's the reality of the situation. Only 10% of the people were in Jerusalem. Only 10% of thousands and thousands of people were in Jerusalem. 90%, the majority of the people, were not in the city. Their names were never mentioned. History will never know who they are, but here's the beauty of it. Every village mentioned, every settlement, every town, every location in verses 25 through 36 is a testimony to us that while we will never know their names, God saw them all. He knew every place where every one of his people were. God knew who they were. God knew where they were serving. God saw their faithfulness. And that is beautiful to me. And can we just be honest and acknowledge this morning that there are times, that sometimes our service, the part we're called to play, is not the thought that we, it's not the part that we thought we would get. Like some of us this morning, if we're honest, like we wish that our name was known not out of a sense of pride or arrogance, but because we are striving faithfully to love Jesus and it just seems like no one sees it and no one cares and we are grinding for his glory and no one is paying attention. Can I tell you this morning that your part, your part in this story, it's seen by God. And and maybe this will be my little Mother's Day plug, all right? Since I didn't do a Mother's Day sermon. Moms, let me encourage you specifically, that, and I know that this can be a struggle because I happen to be married to the mother of two precious girls. I have talked to many of you who are moms, and I know that there are sometimes that the part that you are called to play really just seems like it doesn't matter. You can be tempted to believe that you've lost your identity in motherhood, that you've lost who you are, that you're not seen. There's a temptation to believe that no one sees how hard you are working. And I'll just acknowledge that there is likely some truth to that, that people miss it. You know how I know it? Like, happy Mother's Day, Aaliyah. I didn't tell her I was going to do this. Like, every Sunday for the past nine years that we've had children, I've preached, I mean, barring some breaks, I've showed up. Sometimes I'm here before my wife and my daughters ever are even awake. And at the end of the service, and I thank you for people who say, Pastor Michael, thank you for preaching the word. That was a great sermon. Thank you for all that you do. I don't know of one time that anybody's gone to my wife and said, thank you for getting those kids here this morning. Thank you for serving so that your husband 
could serve. Thank you for your faith. So there's some truth to the fact, right, that we often don't see the work that moms put in. But God sees it. God sees your faithfulness. God sees every diaper you change. God sees every runny nose that you wipe every time you clean that same stupid table that you have cleaned 46 billion times because they can't stop spilling their juice. God sees it. But more importantly, God sees you. But this is not just a truth for moms. There are many even in this room, who may think that no one sees your faithfulness, that no one sees you fighting for the glory of God at your job, no one sees you fighting for the glory of God in your home, no one sees you fighting for the glory of God when you're with your friends, no one sees you fighting for the glory of God when you are all by yourself. You may be tempted to believe that your service doesn't matter, but Nehemiah 11 is positioned to scream to us that God sees you and God loves you. And I know it's true. I know that God sees his servants. Because the gospel tells me so. Because God saw Jesus. Consider Philippians 2. That Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's the gospel that we believe. That Jesus, though he was in the form of God, humbled himself. He became a servant. A servant of God the Father, but also a servant to us. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved to die. He took the penalty for sin on himself. He was crucified and raised from the dead. That we could come to him in faith and repentance and find life and hope and salvation. That we could even be a part of this story at all. But what Philippians 2 tells us, after it tells us about Jesus as a servant, it tells us that God saw him. For this reason, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to me. The gospel declares to us that God sees his children. He sees you in your service. Now, yes, you won't be given the name that is above every other name. And at your name, knees aren't going to bow. And tongues aren't going to confess. But you know what's so amazing about Jesus? Is he invites us to experience all of that with him as we reign with him. The gospel tells us that God sees us. And that God loves us. And this is the truth that the people in Nehemiah 11 understood. It was God's love and God's faithfulness, his compassion and his steadfastness that motivated them to play their part in making much of the God who had done so much for them. So my prayer for us this morning is that through faith, we would play the part that God has called us to play. Not primarily out of a sense of duty and responsibility, not primarily out of a sense of compulsion, but because we are seen by God and we are loved by God and God has proven himself worthy of our lives. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would give us grace to be faithful. 
God, to, to realize what a blessing it is that we even get to be a part of this story at all. That you have been so faithful and so kind and so good. That you have been gracious and merciful and provided a way for us to be made right with you. And that you invite us into your family and into your service. And God, I do pray that we wouldn't see that as a burden, as a duty, as a task, but we would see it as a joy to serve this God who through Christ so willingly served us. God, give us grace to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.